Oh, I'm not eating lunch today. I got so filled with fried chicken yesterday, I just don't want anything else to eat. And if you're a football fan, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you're a South Carolina fan, you can just sit there and enjoy it yourself. So, the first time I heard the saying on this sign, I knew I would never forget it. You've heard it before. Those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And it reminds me that one of the greatest ways we can actually prepare for tomorrow is by remembering yesterday. It's very important. It makes explain why my all-time favorite subject in school and even to this day is history. And had I not planned to go to law school and, and be a corporate lawyer, I would have majored in American history. I love American history, and, and I especially love biographies. One, one book I'm always reading, and I, I keep a lot of books going, I'm always reading biographies. I just finished a biography on Alexander Hamilton. I'm now reading a biography on George Washington. I love biographies, and I'll tell you why. I learned something about reading biographies because generally the greatest biographies are written about the greatest men and the greatest women and people who've had the greatest influence on the world. And the reason why they're such great biographies is because you always learn such great life lessons from these great men and these great women. I've never read a biography that I didn't learn two things. How to be successful in handling success and also how to be successful in handling failure. Because great men and great women have great successes, they also have great failure. Well, today, we're going to begin a series. It's actually a study of the biography of a man who became what many would say is the greatest king who ever lived. I know he's one of the greatest kings for sure of, of, of the nation of Israel. When you read his life, it's so fascinating. It was up and down, it had peaks and valleys. This was a man who succeeded fantastically, but he failed miserably. He knew victory. He knew defeat. He climbed to the top of the mountain of prosperity, and he fell flat on his face in the valley of adversity. His name was David. David lived about 3,000 years ago, and so let me just stop. You may be asking right now, okay, time out. Wait a minute. Why are we studying a guy that lived three millennia ago. Why are we studying a guy that maybe some of you have never really thought about studying or don't know much about? And that would be a good question. As a matter of fact, when you first meet David, it really becomes a great question. Because when you first meet this guy named David, there's nothing about him that would impress you. He was a typical Jewish boy, probably of average height, average weight. He didn't come from a wealthy family. He didn't come from a special family. He actually came from a blue-collar family. As a matter of fact, to be honest, he was just a shepherd from a hick town called Bethlehem. Bethlehem was the Mayberry of Israel. Put that in perspective. How he even became king is really a funny story. Because when God told a priest named Samuel to go to a man named Jesse and look for the king among his sons... Jesse parades seven of his sons out thinking he must be one of, you know, the king must be one of these of my seven sons. And every time a son would go by, Jesse would go, nope, not him, not him, not him. I mean, not one of them won the beauty contest. They didn't even, even win Mr. Congeniality. And so, he, you know, he's wondering, you know, what's going on. And so finally Samuel says, wait a minute. Do you have any other sons? And Jesse says, well, yeah, I mean, there's this, my youngest son, but he's really kind of a runt. He's a shepherd. He stinks. And 
all he knows how to do is take care of sheep. Well, bring him here, and boom, he was the one that God chose. I mean, all these guys, and God chooses Barney Fife. I mean, it's just kind of an incredible thing. And yet there's more. Would it surprise you to learn, this is something I didn't know, would it surprise you to learn that more has been written about David in the Bible than any other character except Jesus? More words are put on paper in God's word about David than anybody outside of Jesus. 66 chapters in the Bible are dedicated to David. The New Testament talks about David more than any other Old Testament character. So when I add all those things in, you got to ask a question. Okay, why was so much written about this guy? In, in all of the Bible, outside of Jesus, why did God put the biggest spotlight on this guy? I mean, after all, he wasn't the only king that Israel had. He wasn't even only, the only great king that Israel had. He was a shepherd, but he's not the only shepherd that's found in the Bible. He was a warrior, but he's not the only warrior that's in the Bible. So again, it's a legitimate question. Why David? Why does God put all this emphasis on David? And why should you and I be excited about taking a few weeks out of our life and studying the life of this man named David? Well, before I answer the question, let me kind of, if you don't mind, since I love history, let me give you a little history. Growing up, I heard preachers, and, and still do it to a certain extent, but I heard preachers compare America to Israel. They'd say, you know, America's got so much in common in Israel. You know, Israel was God's chosen nation. We're God's chosen nation. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's what I heard. And, and so they would compare, you know, America to Israel. And there are maybe some similarities between the two. But when you really kind of study America and Israel, there are some really big differences between the two. For example, America rebelled against Great Britain because they didn't want a king. Israel rebelled against God because they did want a king. Israel said, we want our king. God never wanted Israel to have a king. You say, wait a minute. Why did God care? Why didn't God want Israel to have a king? Because for 400 years, they didn't just have a king. They had the king. God was their king. And so after 400 years of God being their king, they basically said, you know what? We, we don't want you as a king anymore. We want a real king with flesh and bones, uh, bones and blood. But there's another stark difference. See, America didn't want to be like Great Britain. They didn't want to be like France. They didn't want to be like Spain. They didn't, we want to be like so many countries in the world that had a king. They wanted to be different from every other country. That's why they did not want a king. But Israel wanted to be just like every other nation. Every other nation they knew about had a king except them. And so they went to God and they said, look, we want to be just like everybody else. Everybody else has a king. We want a king. Well, they got a king and they got the king they thought they wanted. A man named Saul. And he fit the bill. He was taller than everybody else. He was stronger than everybody else. He was more handsome than anyone else. He had this commanding presence. I mean, he just looked like a king. And they said back then, kind of what we say sometimes now, image is everything. The man's got the it factor. But what they're about to find out is they made a big mistake that we sometimes make. They chose image over integrity. They chose charisma over character. They chose appearance over substance. 
They chose what was on the outside rather than what was on the inside. They voted for what was on the cover of the book, not what was on the inside of the book. And see, one of the things you're going to learn this morning, and one of the best lessons, and I'm still learning it, God just doesn't look at people the way we look at people. God doesn't evaluate people the way we evaluate people. God doesn't size up people the way we size up people. And that's why David was so significant. The reason why there's so much emphasis on David, and the reason why I think it'd be a great thing for us to spend a few weeks studying the life of David is because of something that was said about David that was, has never been said about anybody else in the Bible, and as far as I know, has never been said about anyone else in the history of the world. And it's said about him twice. Now, if you would like to look with me, we're going to look at a little passage of Scripture today. We're in the book of 1 Samuel. It's in the Old Testament. It's about the ninth book of the Old Testament. So you just go to Genesis, start turning right, and you'll hit the book of 1 Samuel. We're in 1 Samuel 13. What we're going to learn today is why not only Saul proved in the end to be the wrong man, but why David was the right man. And what we're going to see is this situation where God is now telling Saul why you are no longer going to be king. You blew it. You messed up. So they chose the first king. I'm going to choose the second king. We're in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. Listen to this passage. God's talking to Saul. Actually, Samuel is. God's talking to Saul through Samuel. But now your kingdom will not endure. That is, Saul, you're about to be history. The Lord has sought out a man. Now watch this. This is what's said about David. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Let me just stop right there. If you met a man or a woman and you knew about them, that their life was such a unique, such a pure, such a powerful, such a pristine, such a one-of-a-kind life, that even God would say about that man or that woman, now there is someone after my own heart. I think you'd have to agree, I want to learn everything I can from that guy or that lady. I want to to observe them. I want to know what makes them tick. What is it about their heart that makes their heart after God's own heart? What is it about them? I mean, I want to learn everything that I can. So I want to begin by asking you a question. How many of you have ever found yourself in a wrong place or a wrong situation or a wrong position? I mean, some of you may say, man, that's, that's where I am right now. I'm, I'm living there. Well, if we're honest, let's just go back. Think about every time you got yourself in the wrong place or the wrong situation, or, 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 or the wrong position. 99.99% of the time, if we're honest, the reason why we wound, we wound up in the wrong place, in the wrong situation, in the wrong position, is because we were following the wrong thing. Almost all of the time. So here's my question. How do you think your life would be different? And how do you think your life would be better if every day, Your number one goal was to stop pursuing success and fame and money and influence and to pursue God's own heart instead. How do you think if if beginning tomorrow, let's just say you're going to start tomorrow, how would you you think your life might change if, if you just said, Lord, just for today, 
I'm not going to worry about making money. I'm not going to worry about climbing a ladder. I'm not going to worry about getting a higher position. I'm not going to worry about what I've got and what I don't have compared to what somebody else has or what somebody else doesn't have. I'm going to worry about one thing. I'm going to focus on one thing. How can I be a person after your own heart? How do you think your life might be different and how it might be better? So that leads us to ask the question, what was it about David that made him a man after God's own heart. Now, here's the good news. You may say, oh, I could never be like David. I, I could never be after God's own heart. Sure you can. If David could be after God's own heart, we can be after God's own heart. What we've got to do is, okay, what did David do that made him a man after God's own heart? And as you study the life of David as a whole, you'll find David did basically three things that you and I can do on a daily basis, and we can become someone after God's own heart. We can become God's Heartthrob, all right? Number one, walk with God faithfully. Walk with God faithfully. Now, let me tell you what, let me think about what, what he said about David. Here is a man after my own heart. Now, when you're after God's heart, that means you have a heart for God. When you have a heart for God, you have a walk with God. Now, if you're gonna have a walk with God, you're gonna learn there are two things that have to be true about you if you're gonna walk with God. Because listen, you don't get to choose how you walk with God. God chooses how you walk with him. And if you're gonna have a walk with God, there are two things that have to be absolutely true about you if you're going to have a walk with God, all right? Number one, you've got to love God's word. You have got to love God's word. David loved God's word. He loved God's law. Out of the 150 Psalms that are in the Bible, David wrote over half of them. When you go read the ones that David wrote, Many of them talk about his love for God's word. And the reason why it's so important that you love God's word is because here's what happens when you do. When you begin to read God's word and you begin to love God's word, you begin to study God's word, two things always happen. Number one, it puts God where he belongs. And number two, it puts you where you belong. It puts me where I belong. It puts God where he belongs. It puts us where we belong. You see, even when David was a shepherd, he always knew who the shepherd was. Remember what he wrote? The Lord is my shepherd. When David became king, he never forgot how he became king. He never forgot who the real king really was. He never let the crown that he wore or the kingdom that he ruled or the enemies that he conquered ever go to his head. He knew without God, I'd still be a shepherd. Without God, Goliath would have eaten me for lunch. Without God, that lion and that bear that I killed would have killed me. So the first mark of, of having a heart, for, of, 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 of walking with God, you've got to love God's word. Now you say, okay, wait a minute. Can you read God's word and not love God's word? Absolutely, because there's more to loving God's word than reading it. If you love God's word, you'll live God's word. So the second thing you've got to do is live God's word. If you're going to walk with God, you've got to say, Lord, first of all, I love your law. I'm going to, I love your word. I'm going to read it. I'm going to study it. Then you say, I'm going to obey it. I am going to live it out. Because there's another time in the, in the, in the Bible where this phrase is used about David. It's over in the book of Acts. And I want you to listen to what God says. God kind of says, this is, why, this is one of the reasons why David was a man after my own heart. Listen to this. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified, this is what God said about David. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. God, 
What is it that made David a man after your own heart? What is it that said, boy, you're just my heartthrob. You are my heart. He will do, everybody say that word, everything I want him to do. He is a man after my own heart. I have finally found somebody that will do everything I want him to do. When you study the life of David, you will find his greatest desire was just simply to follow the will of God and do everything that God wanted him to do. Now, when I was preparing this message, I, this thought came to me, and it, and it took me about five minutes to write it down and say it just the way I said it. So I'm going to read this to you because I want to say it really slow so you get it, all right? If you love God, you will love God's law. All right, everybody nod your head if you agree with that, okay? So if you love God, you'll love God's law, all right? When you love God's law, God's law will be in your heart, not just your head, but your heart, okay? I love Teresa. I don't just carry Teresa around in my head. I carry Teresa around in my heart. So when you love God's law, God's law will be in your heart, all right? When God's law is in your heart, his love will capture your heart. Teresa is in my heart. That's why everywhere I go, her love captures my heart. And when God's love captures your heart, you want to live out God's law that is in your heart. Now, I said it slow, I'm gonna say it now quick, all right? If you love God, you'll love God's law. When you love God's law, God's law will be in your heart. When God's law is in your heart, his love will capture your heart. When his love captures your heart, you wanna live out his law that is in your heart. Guess what? That is exactly what David said. David said in Psalm 48, I desire to do your will, my God. Why? Your law is within my heart. See, when you have a heart for God, let me tell you how you'll know it. Whatever burdens God will burden you. Whatever bothers God bothers you. Whatever delights God delights you. Whatever blesses God blesses you. Whatever is important to God is important to you. Listen, I, I wish I could really, I, I, I've preached this all my life, but I don't think people ever get it sometimes. This book is not just a book to be read. It's not just a book to be explained. It's not just a book to be memorized. It's not even a book just to be believed. This book doesn't come alive until you obey it. It's not enough to read it, explain it, memorize it, believe it. It is to be obeyed. How many, just out of curiosity, how many uh, former Marines do we have in the, in the congregation? How many, anybody, any, any Marines? Okay, where, where's a Marine? I can't see you. Where are you? Oh, there you are. You're a Marine. Hey, thanks, thanks for serving the country. By the way, all of our servicemen, thanks for serving the country. Appreciate you serving the country. I share that for this reason. I'm reading about the Marines, so you can, you can relate to this. I'm reading about the Marines that I was studying for this sermon. It's a true story. There was this uh, young man started, he wanted to join the Marines. And, and uh, I was reading about this. It was a book on how Marines train their soldiers. So there was this new recruit, and, and, and you know, he didn't particularly like rules anyway, which is one reason why it was good he joined the Marines. But he didn't understand the rationale behind the way he was being trained. He had this particular drill instructor, and, and, and I understand most of them are you know, pretty hard, but he had this really hard drill instructor, and this drill instructor was just obsessed that this guy did even the very little things he asked him to do, do, do it just right. For example, 
when, when they were holding their trays in the food line, very first day, they're going through the cafeteria, they're holding their trays in the food line, every man, this, the drill instructor said, look, I want to teach you guys how to hold a tray. So this guy's thinking, dude, I know how to hold a tray. Okay, it's not a hard hold. He said, no, you're going to hold a tray the way I tell you to hold a tray. He said, you take the tray, you put your right hand on the bottom corner like that, and you put your left hand on the top corner like that, and you hold it flat against your chest. Well, one day this guy came in and just kind of picked up a tray like you don't pick up a tray, and the drill instructor saw it. He told him to drop the tray, hit the floor, that made him do 30 push-ups, and I mean just chewed him out. And the guy was so ticked off, he thought to himself, I'm just standing in line to get food, man. Why does it matter how I hold my tray? Well, later on, when he was issued his first rifle, he was amazed on how he was instructed to hold his rifle when he was running or when he was fighting. How do you think he was instructed? How do you think they told him to do it? You put your right hand on the bottom and you put your left hand on the top. You hold a gun just like you hold a tray. And what he thought was a small thing, what he thought was very insignificant, he realized one day just might save his life. When you are after God's heart, here's your attitude. Lord, I want to obey, obey you and do everything you tell me to do, whether it's a big thing like killing a giant or it's a little thing like taking care of a sheep. Whatever you want me to do, I want to do it. My answer is always yes before you even tell me what you want. If you want to be someone after God's own heart, you've got to determine, number one, I'm going to walk with God faithfully. I'm going to love God's law. I'm going to live God's law. All right, second thing, you wait on God patiently. You walk with God faithfully. You wait on God patiently. See, one of the marks of someone who walks with the Lord is a willingness to wait on the Lord. In other words, when you have a heart for God and you, you, you're really a man after, or a woman after God's own heart and you really have a walk with God, this is important. You are not only willing to do whatever God wants you to do. This is important. You're willing to do it when he wants you to do it. Not before he wants you to do it, not too much after he wants you to do it, when he wants you to do it. Now, Saul, king, made two big, two big mistakes. And for God, it was the last straw. This is the reason why Saul lost his kingdom. He not only did something that God expressly told him he was not to do, he did it because he wasn't willing to wait on God to do it. Now, let me set this situation up for you. The Israelites had mortal enemies. Their mortal enemies, imagine who the mortal enemy of the, Philistine, of the Israelites were, who was it? I just said it, Philistines, right? That was kind of like bulldogs and gators, right? So it's kind of like their mortal enemies. So you got, you got the Israelites, you got the Philistines. Well, they're about to go into battle. And I mean, the Philistines are ready. They, they, they are loaded for bear. They got 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers. They got more soldiers you can count on your fingers and toes. The Israelites were scared to death. And Saul knew we need God's help before we go into this battle or we're surely going to lose. Well, it was the job of Samuel, the priest. His job was to offer up the sacrifice, to offer up the burnt offerings to the Lord to make sure that they were right with God, that their sins had been forgiven, and that God was on their side. I mean, the rules were very plain. Uh, from the very beginning, when Saul became king, God said two simple things to Saul. Saul, you're the king. Your job's to rule the kingdom. Samuel is the priest. His job is to offer the sacrifice and the burnt offering. It was very, very plain. Now, we're in 1 Samuel 13. We're going to pick up in verse 8. 
He waited seven days, that is Saul, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done, asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you, i.e., you didn't wait on God. If you had... He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, a man who will wait on me and appoint him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now, let me just stop. This is one of those times you read the Bible, and let's just be honest. You go, what's the big deal? I don't get it. Okay, so the king fired up the big green egg and barbecued the meat. I mean, I, well, I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, the meat was going to get barbecued one way or the other, so what does it matter? Well, here's the problem. When you don't wait on God, what you're really saying is you don't trust God. When you don't wait on God, what you're really saying is you don't trust God. When you don't wait on God, what you're really saying is, I just don't believe you're going to come through. I, I, I believe you've fallen asleep at the wheel. I believe you forgot your promise. I don't believe you're going to do what you said you would do. And anytime you don't trust God, that is a big deal to God. You think about this practically. I've seen it in my own life. How many times has somebody married the wrong person? because they wouldn't wait on God to bring them the right person. How many times has somebody taken the wrong job for the wrong reason because they wouldn't wait on God to open the right job, the right door at the right time? How many times has somebody tried to rig the system or manipulate the circumstances rather than just wait on God to work it all out? Now, I, I want to give you a thought that I hope you will super glue to your heart. Because let me tell you something. What I'm about to, to, to warn you about, I've done it at times in my own life. So I'm just telling you, I've been here, okay? When you take your life into your own hands, you take God's hands off of your life. When you take your life into your own hands, you take God's hands off of your life. See, if what Saul did was to, was to come before a court of law today, would it be illegal? No. It wouldn't even be declared unethical, but it was worse. It was ungodly. Because here's what Saul did. The moment Saul fired up that big green egg and the moment Saul put that meat on that grill, he had just signed his personal declaration of independence from God. I don't need you. You can't handle this anyway. I'll handle it myself. Well, David, who was after God's own heart, he had a totally different attitude. He wrote in Psalm 25, 1, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. David proved he trusted God. How? 
He waited on God. You say, what do you mean? Well, we're going to be studying this. Let me get a little ahead of the story here. We're going to be studying some of this as we go along this series. Fast, we, we, let's, let's rewind the tape. David's 15 years old, and he comes before Samuel. Samuel looks at David and says, that's the guy. He's the one. He, he, he's the anointed one. He's going to be the king, 15 years old. Did he become king the next day? Nope. The next week? Nope. The next month? Nope. The next year? Nope. The next decade? Nope. He had to wait 15 years to become king. And those 15 years were no picnic. He spent those 15 years tending sheep in the desert, fighting a giant nobody else would fight, being put on a hit list by the king he was going to replace, running for his life from both the king that wanted to kill him and the enemies he had angered by killing their hero. All that time for 15 years, he's on the run. People are trying to kill him. He can't go home. He can't go back to his family. He's hiding in caves. He's hiding behind rocks. He's hiding in bushes. He even has one time to pretend he's crazy so the Philistines won't kill him. But for 15 years, you know what David said? I'm gonna put my trust in you. I'm gonna wait on you. I don't care how tough things get. I don't care how hopeless things seem. Here's what I know. One day you said I'd be king and I'm going to be king. It may not be till I'm 95 years old and I may only be king for a day, but I know I'm going to be king because you said I would. And I'm going to put my trust in you because no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. Let me ask you a question. Where are you right now in your life tempted to get ahead of God right now? Where are you tempted to get ahead of God? Well, we're engaged and we love each other. But are you willing to wait on the Lord? Well, there's this job, and, and it is going to offer me more money, but, but there's this, and there's that. Are you willing to wait on the Lord? Where we're having difficulties in our marriage, and, and, and we're thinking, are you willing to wait on the Lord? You walk with God faithfully. You wait on God patiently. And then here's the last thing. You witness to God truthfully. You witness to God truthfully. Now, let's go back to Saul for just a moment, okay? Saul got his hand caught in the cookie jar. He's caught red-handed. He flat out disobeyed God, and it was nobody's fault but his own. All he had to do was wait on God. Samuel was on the way. He just waits on Samuel. Samuel does the deal. Samuel fires up the big green egg. Samuel cooks the meat, and everybody lives happily ever after, but no, he wouldn't do it, all right? So he's caught red-handed. Samuel says to him, what have you done? Now, look what Samuel does. He comes through just like a chump. What have you done, asked Samuel. Saul replied. Now, watch this. When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the Lord's savor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. He did what we all tend to do when we're caught, what we all tend to do when the chips are down, what we all tend to do when our backs are against the wall, he made excuses and he put the blame on somebody else. You know, we, we have all become experts. Let's just be honest. Let's just get real honest with each other. We've all become experts at throwing somebody under the bus, right? I mean, we, we, we have. And that's what he did. Well, Samuel, if you 
Well, it has nothing to do with Samuel. Yeah, and, and the Philistine. No, it has nothing to do with the Philistines. Well, my, my men were scattering. It has nothing to do with the men. I told you I would do what I was going to do, and I told you who, what you were to do and what Samuel was to do. You didn't listen. Threw everybody else under the bus, blamed everybody else, made excuses after excuses after excuses. But here's what we're told about David. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with, and this is one of my favorite words. I love this word. He shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. You see that word integrity? That word literally means complete. It means whole. It means innocent. Integrity, let me tell you what integrity is. Integrity is what you are when nobody else is looking. It's what you are when nobody else is looking. It's telling the truth when everybody else lies. I want you to remember this. You cannot fake it with God. You cannot fake it with God. When you are after God's own heart, you will always witness to God truthfully. That is, when you fall, you don't blame somebody else for tripping you up. When you take the wrong road, you don't blame somebody else because they changed the sign. When you mess up, you don't blame somebody else for causing the mess. Because remember, you know how when you, if you ever go to court and, and you have to give testimony, you have to do it under oath. Let me tell you something. You are always under oath with God. You are always under oath when it comes to God. And when it comes to God, all he wants you to do is always tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you God. Now, let me just stop right here. What is the point of this story that we told so far? As we kind of introduce this, this man named David. What is the whole point of the story? Go back to why God chose David. God chose David for one reason. Not because he had charisma. Not because he had personality. Not because he had pizzazz. Not because he was a great communicator. Not because he was a man of means. Not because he came from a great family not even because of what he could do for God. He chose David because he was a man after his own heart. So what is the point of the story? All right, this is one I want you to write down. God chooses who he uses, and he starts with the heart. God chooses who he uses, and he starts with the heart. Now, let me just stop right there. Some of you may say, well, Man, I could never be David. God, I could never be after someone's own heart. Man, you don't even know me. You don't know what I deal with. You don't know my weaknesses. You don't know my, my failures. You don't know my foils. You don't know my foibles. You don't know my faults. How in the world could you say I could be a man after God's own heart? I'll tell you how. I'll tell you why I know that. Because God is not looking for a perfect heart. God's just looking for a pure heart just a pure heart. That's all God wants. That's all God is looking for. Now, you know, there's an old saying, you ladies know this, a man's heart is through his stomach. The way to a man's heart may be through his stomach, but the way to God's heart is through his son. The way to God's heart is through his son. When you read this Bible from one end to the other, here's what you'll find out. God is willing to make a king out of any man. And God is willing to make a queen out of any woman 
who will trust the King of kings, who will make Jesus Christ his Lord and Jesus Christ his Savior because God always focuses on the heart. And when you have a heart for his son, the Lord Jesus, you have a heart for the Father of the Lord Jesus and he wants us to focus on our heart and his heart. So here's what I want you to do, okay? Put your pens down, close your iPad, shut your iPhone off. Turn to your neighbor and say right now, turn to your neighbor and say, listen up. Do it right now, all right? Turn to your neighbor and say, listen up. All right, listen up. I want to share with you one of the sweetest, most incredible, true stories I've ever come across. I've never told this story before. But every time I read it, when I was working on this message, I was telling Trace about it. It's just such a sweet story, but it's such a great illustration of what I'm talking about. It took place many years ago in New York City. At six minutes, I want you to get the picture, six minutes till six o'clock, a man by the name, a soldier by the name of John Blanford was standing in Grand Central Terminal. His heart was racing. His palms were sweaty. His blood pressure was up. Because in the next six minutes, he was going to meet a woman who had captured his heart. Now, the amazing thing about it is he had never seen this woman. He, he had never talked to her. The reason he even got to know who she was is because he checked a book out of a library and he began to read this book, and it was littered with personal notes that this woman had written in the margin of that book, and the notes were better than the book. And the notes just captured his heart. Well, he found out uh, uh, the, the name of a lady. Her name was Hollis Maynell. It was on the book plate. And her name was Hollis Maynell. And he began to search for her because he just found her so attractive. Just something about what she said and the way she spoke. Her heart captured his heart. Well, somehow he was able to find her address and, and he wrote her a letter and they began to correspond. And for the next 13 months, they, they wrote letters to each other. Well, he asked her in a letter to send a photograph and she refused. And he asked her again, she refused. And he wrote her back and said, why won't you send a photograph? And she said, if your feeling for me has any reality and any true basis, what I look like won't matter. When you come to New York, you'll see me then and you can make your decision about pursuing me or not. Just remember... Both of us are free to stop or to go after that, whichever we choose, no hard feelings. So they would agree he was going to come to New York and meet there at Grand Central Station, and they had agreed that she would be wearing a red rose on her lapel to identify her, and he would have this book in his hand to identify him. So it's one minute till six. He looks at his watch, and he's, he's just got chill bumps all over him, right? And he says, Wait, where is she? Where is she? And all of a sudden, he looks up, and here comes this beautiful woman. I mean, drop dead gorgeous. His heart leaped. She was young, slender, blonde hair, blue eyes, just a knockout. But she wasn't wearing a red rose. She got up to him and she smiled provocatively and she said, uh, going my way, soldier? He took a step closer, and all of a sudden, out of the corner of his eye, he noticed, here came Hollis Maynell, just a few feet behind this beautiful lady. And y'all, she was wearing a red rose. Now, to put this as tactfully as I know how, she wasn't a blonde. She didn't have blue eyes. She wasn't slender. She was an older lady, thinning gray hair, and just physically 
not attractive to him. The beautiful lady walked off and Blanford just, he felt like he was being torn in two. I mean, on the one hand, he wanted to follow that beauty he had just met. He, he thought, she is the most beautiful woman I have ever seen. She has captured my eyes. And yet it was the words of this unattractive woman <clears throat> who had so completely captured his heart. <clears throat> he took a deep breath. He turned his back on the blonde. He gripped that book till his knuckles were white. He walked up to this lady, thinking to himself, we'll have something special. It probably will never be romantic love, but at least I'll get to know her better. And so in a twinge of disappointment, he kind of gathered himself, and he squared his shoulders, and he held out the book, and he said, uh, I'm Lieutenant John Blanford, and you're Miss Maynell, and I'm so glad to meet you, and I wonder if I could take you to dinner. The woman smiled and she said, son, I don't know what this is all about, but the young lady who just went by you begged me to wear this rose on my coat. And she said that if you ask me to go out with you, I should tell you that she's waiting in the restaurant across the street. She said it was a test of your heart. I have never seen Jesus. I really don't know what he looks like. I've never heard his voice. He's never spoken to me out loud. But I know this. His words have captured my heart. <clears throat> And though I've never seen him, and I've never touched him, and I've never heard him, and I've never felt him, I've never loved anybody like him. And I believe that's what makes somebody someone after God's own heart. Let's pray together.